Bless you. You may be seated. I am actually going to ask you if you have one of these black books in front of you to pull it and uh, open it with me to the Old Testament lesson. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. 2 Samuel chapter 18 in your pew Bibles. It's Old Testament found on page 228. 228. We'll be there in just a moment. The Old Testament lesson for this morning finds us in the middle of the life of a man, the king of Israel, a man named David. What do we know about David? How is David characterized in Scripture? A warrior, okay. Say that again. A man after God's own heart. That's the title that most often gets attached to David. He is known as a man after God's own heart. Now, for just a moment, I want you to set aside what you know about David and just look at that title, a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, a person after God's own heart. If you were creating this person after God's own heart, what would that person be like? Honest, okay. Giving. Pardon? Compassionate. Humble, okay. Faithful. Pardon? Moral values, okay. Okay. Loving. All right. Obedient. Man of prayer. All right, we've got a long list, right? All these things that would be this man or woman, this person after God's own heart. Now bring David back into the picture. Does David, the man we know, fit the description we've just given of the person we would create were we to create from scratch this man after God's own heart? Is it okay? Youngster, yes. Adult, no. All right. He did make mistakes. It doesn't say he was a man after God's own heart all the time, right? In fact, if you look at the story of David, you you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, if you were a movie producer, a television producer. You know, the, the, the raunchiest soap opera on television today or the evening drama, Dallas and Dynasty back in the 70s and 80s, Beverly Hills 90210, Desperate Housewives, you know, you could not come up with a script more salacious, if you will, than David's life. Let's pick up just a little of what we know. It, in, to put today's reading into some context. We know that David, as a young boy, was indeed a young man after God's own heart, anointed by God through the prophet Samuel to take the throne to succeed Saul, the king first anointed by Samuel, but who had found displeasure in the eyes of God, and David was the one to replace 
Saul. We know that once David becomes king, um, in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, David's uh, reign begins with, he's got, he's now having, he's fathering children. And in chapter 3, you find the names of the first six of his sons. Absalom, whom we read about in the reading for today, is the third of those six sons. I might add, all six of those sons born by different wives. Put that in a soap opera, huh? Absalom is the third of those sons. Absalom has a sister born of the same mother. His sister's name is Tamar. Tamar is beautiful. And all the men of the land have their eyes on Tamar. But one of those men who have their eyes on Tamar is the eldest of David's son, Amnon. And Amnon devises, with the help of some of his cousin counterparts, a way to entrap Tamar. And fast forward through the story, Tamar is raped by her elder brother, Amnon. Absalom hears of this, and he's deeply troubled. He is angry. And over a course of two years, schemes his own revenge on his brother, Amnon. Absalom uses his father, David, manipulates David, the trickery that gets Amnon in the same place with Absalom at a feast. Absalom has communicated with his servants that at the moment he gives the word, they are to strike down Amnon. And Amnon is killed by the order of his brother, Absalom. Word gets back to David, and David is beside himself. He's mourning over the loss of his son. Absalom is in some bit of exile, but David's heart continues to reach out to Absalom. And there is a point in the story where David and Absalom are reconciled. Absalom is back in the presence of his father David. David forgives him, and he lives in peace for some two or three years. I might also throw into this scenario David's own little issue of deceit and adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of the commanders in his army. And David himself is engaged in adultery and ultimately murder in having Uriah placed at the front of the lines in combat and ordering the rest of the troops to withdraw, basically leaving Uriah out there to die. David is confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan. And what happens when David is confronted? Do you remember? David has judgment for that man, and Nathan looks at him and says, You are the man. And David responds, How? I've sinned. He repents. He turns from his sin. He is sorrowful for his sins. And he's prostrate before God. He understands what it's like to receive the grace and forgiveness of God. 
So in a sense, if you look at the pattern of David's life, David is a man who offers forgiveness frequently. He, if you remember, during the time when he was uh, being pursued by Saul's armies, Saul knew David as a threat to the throne. David had the opportunity to take Saul's life while Saul was sleeping, and he refused because he was not going to touch God's anointed. Now we're fast-forwarding. Here is Absalom, who's received the forgiveness of his father, but he begins to, he, he begins to get caught up in his own press, if you will. What do we know about Absalom? The scripture here says, okay, he has long hair. He only cut his hair once a year. And it was beautiful hair. But that's just, that was just the icing on the cake, if you will. What we know about Absalom is that he was a man, the scripture says that from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, there was no blemish. He was handsome. He was charismatic. People were drawn to him. He had the ability to, to, to win people's affections. And he slowly, over a period of a few years, began to draw the allegiance of the people of Israel to him in such a way that now he is plotting to become the king in David's place. Here's where we pick up the reading from this morning. Absalom's followers have gathered and they are in opposition to King David. The word comes to David. Absalom's armies have mounted, and there's going to be a confrontation. But David, in gathering the three commanders, gives them very specific instruction about Absalom. He says, regarding my son, Absalom, the young man Absalom, do him no harm. Right? So what happens? The the, the battle is engaged. Absalom is on his mule, as we picked up the reading from this morning. He gets that beautiful hair caught in the branches of a tree. He's dangling between heaven and earth. Joab, who is one of the commanders who heard David's instruction not to do any harm to Absalom, one of his men finds Absalom dangling between heaven and earth, comes and reports to Joab, he's found Absalom. Now, the lectionary reading left out part of this story that I think is important, and that's what I want us to look at. If you've opened your Bibles to page 228, in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, beginning at verse 9, the reading for this morning made it sound like there was a group of ten of these soldiers who, having found Absalom dangling in the tree, ganged up on him and put him to death. That's not the full story. Absalom happens to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thicket branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. A man saw it and told Joab, the commander who had been instructed, Don't do Absalom harm. He said to Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told who uh, let's see. Joab said to the man who told him, 
What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Attai, saying, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And this is where the reading picked up this morning. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So this was Joab, the commander who's actually responsible for the death of Absalom, David's son, who he's been instructed to do no harm. Think about this. Joab has received specific instruction that reflects the heart of David, right? Why is David compassionate toward Absalom? He loves him. He's his son, right? And no matter what the differences might be, There is this sense in David that as long as Absalom is alive, there is hope for reconciliation. But Joab knows David's heart and takes matters into his own hands. Goes against his clear instruction from David, against clearly the heart of David, and kills Absalom. What do you suppose motivated Joab? Revenge, maybe, okay. Desire for, a desire for peace, okay? He could have justified that. As long as Absalom is alive, there's a potential for this conflict to go on forever. So even though David says he doesn't want Absalom killed, we know what's best. We're going to do what's right, even though David doesn't see what's right. We're going to take matters into our own hands. David will thank us one day. That's kind of the attitude that you get from Joab. I want to put this into the context of our life as Christians today. Are there ever times, you think, when we as Christians, as followers after God, disciples of Jesus Christ, miss the heart of God? Are there ever times when we take the attitude, God, you're not here. Trust me. You'll thank me for this later. I know what's right. I I know what's best. And we take matters into our own hands. It's almost a, there's a self-preservation here. Think about it from Joab's perspective. If the battle continues... Absalom lives and the battle continues. He and his soldiers are all at risk. So this is self-preservation for Joab. But it's in direct defiance of the heart of King David. I fear at times as Christians, we look at the world in which we live and we've painted in our imaginations what the the church of God should look like, what a a holy people should look like. 
And we go out into the world as though saying to God, trust us, we'll create the world that you really wanted. And we ignore the heart of God. It is important for us as Christians not to lose the reason why we exist. And it's to to carry into the world the heart of a loving God who goes to the ends of the earth seeking those who are lost. The parables that Jesus told about the lost coin, the, the prodigal son, reflects to us the heart of a loving, caring God who will go to incredible lengths to bring his children home. And yet I think there are times when as Christians we are more involved with preserving our own preferences and priorities and we lose sight of the heart of God. To the gospel really quick. Jesus says, I am the bread. My flesh is the bread and my blood is the wine. Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and you shall live. Jesus is not just talking about what we do here on Sunday mornings in remembrance of him. And we pray every week that this would become the body and the blood of Christ to us. But if this exercise doesn't result in the strengthening of a relationship that exists between our hearts and the heart of God, we've missed the point of what we do. I'm reading a great book that I commend to your reading, co-authored by Tony Campolo and Brian McLaren. It's simply titled, Adventures in Missing the Point. <laughs> and I think often we're guilty as Christians of focusing so much on the trappings of what we've come to, to celebrate together and miss the heart of God altogether. Where am I going with this? At the beginning of the summer, I'm going to bring it right down to where we are, we launched an experiment together. And many of you, well, all of you have been engaged in that experiment. You're here at 1030 on Sunday morning. You're part of the experiment. We, two and a half years ago, began to work and pray and discern together as a parish about what are the things that really reflect God's heart and what are, what are the things that are important to us. And among those priorities that were established, and there were more than these, but among those were a variety of liturgical worship and Christian formation. We've not been able to do those as effectively as we felt we could. And this wasn't a harebrained idea from Father Michael. This was something we prayed and discerned together. Let me hasten to say, those priorities are still priorities. How we live those priorities out can take a variety of forms. I'm not here this morning to say that the experiment that started in June has been a a, a great success. Nor am I here to decree that it's been a miserable failure. It's been just what it has been. An opportunity to explore how we make those priorities, how we live those priorities out in our parish. And I have to say that the Saturday night lab that was started in, in June 
has been a great vehicle for us to do some experimentation with, with liturgy. And those of you who've been a part of it, you know that it's not been quite the same from week to week. But it's been a wonderful place for some experimenting. And those of you who've been a part of our adult forums on Sunday morning, probably you can say that I know in the time that I've been here, this is the best series of adult forums that we've had. And education, that formation is important. Those priorities remain. We're at a place where very shortly determinations need to be made about you know, how do we continue to focus on those priorities while, and if you read my article in the July Clarion, you know what I'm trying to say here. We want to be as effective as we can with how we are structured on our weekends. And what, those, what that schedule looks like is still very much up in the air. And contrary to what some may have said, I don't really have an agenda other than I want us not to be guilty of missing the heart of God in preserving what traditions have become important to us. Does that make sense to you? I want us to move forward knowing that we are truly following the heart of God. And uh, to that end, I invite you to continue to engage with me in this dialogue over these next few weeks. And next Sunday morning, following this service, uh, we're going to have a forum in the parish hall that all of you are invited to stay and participate, as well as those who come at 7.30 and those who've been here on Saturday night, and we want to flesh this out together. But I want us to come, not having missed the point. Why we are here is to truly reflect the heart of a loving God in this world that desperately needs to see that heart lived out. What it looks like, I really have no preference so long as we can live that out. And if we can do it in a way that brings glory to God and encouragement to all of us while inviting others in this community who don't know Christ to come to a place where they can, can experience Christ in a fresh way, then we will have accomplished what we are here to do. I end with the collect that we began with this morning as our prayer. Grant us, Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.